This is an Alexandrian Media original podcast. sorry no we're not okay then i'm sorry (laughs) on behalf of my partner in crime who has been very 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 busy i've been very busy very very busy we haven't even introed welcome to our show (laughs) culture but not really unqualified lessons in history and pop culture i'm your very sorry host Brian Edwards, and I'm your not sorry host Stephen Trigar. He's being real. He's being a real rascal today. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but we've just been very busy. Yeah, we had a wedding in Georgia. Stephen's been recording an audio and producing an audio book. Yeah, that's been me. I've been, so, I've been very busy. I haven't had a lot of free time to, let alone think of doing an episode. Even though, you know. It was Stevens week, so. Yeah, but I was busy. Yeah. Anyway, so we're doing a kind of different episode different. today. Yeah. Ooh, she different. We different. Um, this week, we don't have any scripts at all. No. Going off or, the cuff. Going off Ad-lib, the cuff. Everything. Improv. It's what we do. <laughs> but I thought it would be a really cool kind of exploration into us. So cool. Some something similar that we did to our um hobbies episode a few weeks back. Yeah. Um you love doing episodes that require you not to write anything down. Because it's it's <laughs> it's just makes it much more fun. It just it just we just I love this energy. Just yeah. Energy. Energy. Gay energy. Um so we're gonna be doing um kind of our favorite books. Our favorite books. So from my end of things, I picked three books that um, kind of had an impact on my entire life and my kind of just throughout uh, my life. I and will say there is one book that I would like to talk about, but I don't physically own it anymore. So I don't have uh, it with me. But so, yeah, let's let's get started. Um so, do you want me to go first, or do you want to go first? I'll go first. You go first. What book do you have? So, the first book I don't physically have with me, because I wanted to do these books in kind of the order I of the age I read them each, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, the first book series that I ever read that I fell in love with was a series by Notorious... <laughs> Infamous crime author, James Patterson. Okay. And when I was in middle school, there was a series he wrote for like young adults. Okay. Called Maximum Ride. Okay. And it was my favorite series. They got weird at the end and I stopped liking them. But it was on par with at the time, like really cool edgy teens being cool edgy teens. So the book centered around the main character whose name was Maximum Ride. And she, along with all of her family, air quote, family, were uh, children who had been experimented on and 
were given avian genes and which gave them all wings okay. so they could fly. Okay. Um, and they each also had like special powers of their own and they were spent the whole book like running away from this the institute they called the school because it was edgy deep where the uh, they were constantly hunted after by these wolf hybrid creatures called erasers right and it was just for me it was very cool it was very interesting and it was just one of those kinds of books that you read when you're like 13 going like this is the coolest thing ever oh my god <laughs> um and the book series kind of petered out they haven't he hasn't written any more of them and unfortunately it wasn't really that great at the end it went from being a story that was like genuinely interesting of like these children that were being hunted that they had to like like they're constantly fighting these these wolf people to like the last book being about like the warnings of global warning warming gotcha which just felt like it just took a weird turn into like self-righteous yeah but it was definitely a very interesting premise from the beginning and the first few books were very good um but it was definitely one of those stories that i always kind of think back and remember and unfortunately they did try to turn it into a movie but clearly no one knows about it. I, I, I don't. It didn't do very well. I imagine so. But it was definitely the kind of young adult novel series that wasn't as like popular as like your uh, Hunger Games or your Twilights or your, you know, whatever other book yeah. falls similar into the vein. Your Divergence. Yeah, but all those big dystopian stuffs. Yeah. But it was definitely interesting, and it, and it all took place in like modern day America, and so it was just kind of an interesting dynamic. Because at one point they're like in New York City, and they're like hiding out from these these wolf monsters in New York City. It's just like interesting because it's very like crossing the the line of like like sci fi realism, right? But. Definitely a series that if you have a if you have someone that you know would be interested in young adult sci-fi, you know, hunting book, I don't know hunting, <laughs> like sci-fi action, like running from the law kind of stories. Right. Definitely at least read the first one. Yeah. Do you have a first book? I do have a first book. I think. I'm going to start with one of the very first books that kind of had a huge impact on me, um, which was Wicked. Um, the I whole series. Heard you talk many a time about this. Yeah, series. we've talked. We talked about this in the hobby episode. We talked about this in the Wizard of Oz episode. I know. It's like, when are we going to finally just get put this shit to bed? Right. Um, so. I know you didn't have the physical book in front of you for the that first book that you were talking about, but kind of one thing I wanted to do with each of these books is to kind of read the synopsis on the back. So if anybody listening to the this episode wants to kind of go and read these books, you can go do so. Um, so before I get into anything about Wicked, I'll just read you the synopsis on the back of the book. 
when Dorothy triumphed over the Wicked Witch of the West in L. Frank Baum's classic novel, well, classic tale, we heard only her side of the story. But what about her arch nemesis, the mysterious witch? Where did she come from? How did she become so wicked? And what is the true nature of evil? Gregory Maguire creates a fantasy world so rich and vivid that we will never look at Oz the same way again. Wicked is a land where animals talk and strive to be treated like first-class citizens. Munchkinlanders seek the comfort of middle-class stability, and the Tin Man becomes a victim of domestic violence. And then there is the little green-skinned girl named Alphaba, who will grow up to become the infamous Wicked Witch of the West, a smart, prickly, and misunderstood creature who challenges all our preconceived notions about the nature of good and evil. So, yeah, yeah, I think when I first started reading this book, I had actually accidentally read the second book first. You've done that a couple times, I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> really, that's not uncommon for you to do. And I think because so, so this is something we talked about in and then the hobbies episode where. I, especially at a specific age, I was just drawn to books based off of their cover. I always do that. Um, and so I was very much drawn to Son of a Witch because of its cover, especially the version that I had in the, the very early versions before, um, before Wicked started becoming a fuller series where, um, the outside cover was like fully, yeah. it was a full illustration rather than just a kind of um, single tone cover that most of the Wicked books are with the little window to a second page that shows you the right. full illustration. The, the copy that I picked up had the full illustration on the cover mm. and then inside the little window was an, a whole second image. So there was two, basically two illustrations for, for the cover of the book that I had picked up. And I thought that was really cool to have like two illustrations, like two covers. Um, and I started reading it and I started realizing that I understood absolutely nothing. I had picked up a little bits and pieces here and there because I knew about the wizard of Oz and I knew what was in the wizard of Oz, but I was like, what the heck is happening? Like, what is Kiamoko and what is all, what is all that's happening? But as everybody knows, because I said it in several episodes now, Wizard of Oz is one of my favorite things in the world. The whole episode on it. Yeah. <laughs> we did. Um, and so I don't know. It's just, it's just like so many of the books that I read, and things that I find and like most of the books that I love and actually most of the books that I'll talk about are they're my favorites because of the world the the universe that it resides in is a world that I feel like I could possibly live in. And one thing that I, I mean, yeah, w w Wizard of Oz is not a world that we necessarily do want to live in, but it's just. I love books that have worlds that are so unbelievably fleshed out that they could be real worlds. Right. Um, 
and the Wizard of Oz, and especially with Greg McGuire giving that chance to expand L. Frank Baum's already incredibly established world and bringing that world into an adult perspective rather than the child perspective that Baum had done. Right. I think that's really what has such a huge impact on me. Um, I, I will say that, um, that wicked is a book that is not for the faint of heart. It is definitely very dark. Uh, there's a lot of very, um, explicit things that happen in the book. And that's just kind of Gregory Maguire's writing style. But, mm. um, Sorry, I cut you off. What were you going to say? I was just saying, and without Wicked, though, we wouldn't have one of the best Broadway musicals. Even though I know from what you've said that the musical is much more Disneyified and oh yeah, its own thing. Yeah, I mean that's not to say that. I mean, it's just, it, it has it has its connections, and yeah, you know, I know you just said how terrible it is. And I never said it was terrible. Just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah, but there. It, the Wicked the Musical was definitely altered a little bit more for a wider audience because the things that happen in the book are definitely not for the faint of heart. Well, I will definitely be able to top that. Oh, I know. Um, I have a book on my list that is probably even more of a raunchy author than... <laughs> Gregory Maguire. We do have a, a, a book that we have to share that we'll talk about a little bit later. That's probably equally as as uh, devastating. Eh, yes and no. I mean, yeah. the book I'm talking about definitely doesn't hold literally anything back. <laughs> what is your second book? But to get to that book, I have to go through two other books. Okay. So the next book I wanted to talk about was a book I read in high school for my uh we call it humanities class okay humanities was just basically a joint class of social studies and literature so just combine them we had two teachers for it a massive class but this book is when the emperor was divine by julie otsuka okay and the reason why i love this book because i also ended up reading it in college from uh, a literature and culture class and I just found it to be so intriguing, so like heartbreaking, and also just like so clever in the simplest of ways. So it's a book that centers around Japanese internment during the Second World War. And one of the biggest things to note with this book is none of the main characters have names. Mm. They're only referenced as who they are in the family. So it's the mother, the brother, the sister. Right. And the reason why she did that was even though it was centered around one particular family's journey during internment, she wanted to make it clear that this could have been any family. Because so many families were given the same, like horrible treatment during this time so she wanted to make it very clear that there wasn't any one particular family that she wanted to write about she wanted to write about all of them while writing about one of them right um but let me just read the synopsis because i do physically have this book in my hand yeah uh, on a sunny day in berkeley california in 1942 a woman sees a sign in a post office window returns to her home and matter-of-factly begins to pack her family's possessions like thousands of other Japanese Americans, they have been reclassified virtually overnight. 
as enemy aliens and are about to be uprooted from their home and sent to a dusty internment camp in the Utah desert. In this lean and devastatingly evocative first novel, Julia Tsuka tells the story from five flawlessly realized points of view and conveys the exact emotional texture of their experience. The thin-walled barracks, the barbed wire fences, the omnipresent fear and loneliness, the unheralded feats of heroism, and When the Emperor Was Divine is a work of enormous power that makes a shameful episode of our history as immediate as today's headlines. Yeah. Which does again goes into what i was saying it's just it's it's not a very long read i mean i mean it's very small but that's why i think it's also it does a lot in very little yeah so it's very approachable for a book sometimes you see books and they're like you know massive like lord of the rings style books and you're like that's gonna be a lot to get through like one of the most comically lookingly long books that i've ever seen is infinite jest right which is just like it looks horrible to read. <laughs> so something like this book that I've seen, and I, I love it because I've read it a few times, it doesn't feel overwhelming and it's still so powerful. Right. So you, she, you know, the author, Julia Tsuko, is able to put so much like impact into such a small, concise book. Right. And I think is also something that makes it like, I think everyone should read it, just especially because yeah. it highlights, uh, like it said, a shameful part of our history. And I think that people don't always even remember or even know that it happened. Right. Because people, especially when we think about the atrocities of the Second World War, we only ever think about what happened for the Holocaust. But right. that shit happened here. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that happened and, in a lot of places. And the thing that's kind of upsetting to think about after the fact of reading it is it does highlight some of the xenophobia that happened during the time, which right. very clearly mimics similar xenophobic like hatred and violence that's happened for literally over every single event in our history, whether it was the war on terrorism and the, the uh, you know, the way we treated Muslim Americans to even more recently when COVID happened and the amount of Asian Amer Asian violence that was happening around the world because of it right. happened to start in China and everyone blamed China. Like, yeah, it's things like that, that this book kind of, like it said, it feels like it's current for today's headlines because it never really went away. Right. And I mean, and, and books like that are always going to be incredibly important because it marks a point in history that we don't want to repeat. Right. And books like that are always going to be relevant. Well, and it it, it reminds me of a uh, the the slogan of the uh, American Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., which is remember what you saw here. Right. Because it's supposed to be evocative and it's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable because it's supposed to remind you to never let it happen again. Right. And that book does a very good job because especially because it's written pretty um, third person style. So hmm. it even feels very dry. Like you almost like like how the way it was read, written wasn't like not a lot of this added emotion was pumped into it. It was like it's already so emotional and the dialogue and the 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 writing doesn't convey that it's just the situations that you can see how like 
impactful they were. Right. But yeah, I think it's it's definitely an important book. So yeah, it meant a lot to me back in high school. It meant more to me in college because I already kind of knew what I I got out of it the first time and got to reread it and get more out of it. And uh, it's a good book. You should go read it. Yeah. What's your second book? My second book, and before I mean, it's kind of uh, it ties it into something that we were talking about. But uh, before I get into my second book, um. I want to say that I do know that there are some things happening in the world that we all don't necessarily like. Um, and it's it, there's tragic things that are going on in this world, um, namely Russia's war with Correct. Ukraine. Yeah. Um, and so before I get into my second book, I want to say that I absolutely do not um side with anything <laughs> of course i side uh, with, uh, with ukraine and and think that whatever russia is doing is absolutely abhorrent um but the russian russian folklore is the topic of my next book so i wanted to come up well, with that before I think we it's also important to know that just because something just because russia is doing something doesn't mean all of russia is responsible no and i think that it's very obvious from the the amount of protesting that's been happening in russia with those who sympathize with ukraine is is just as important to remember that right similar to the way us is looked at sometimes just because a nation is being represented doing something horrible right doesn't mean that the nation itself is all horrible. Right. To vilify a whole nation in any context is ridiculous. Right. But I did want to preface yeah. with it's that. Important. It's important to keep it in mind. Right. It's also important to, to remember that there's right. more to a nation than, than the behaviors of one selective person's, right. you know, horrible decision to do horrible things. Of course. Um, but um, the... Russian folklore and whatnot is only the inspiration for um, Catherine Arden's The Bear and the Nightingale. Um, it is certainly a um, an original story, but it does take from from ancient Russian folklore and ancient myths from Russia. Um, so uh, I'll just start off with reading its synopsis. At the edge of the Russian wilderness, winter lasts most of the year and the snowdrifts grow taller than horses. But Vasilisa doesn't mind. She spends the winter nights huddled around the embers of a fire with her beloved siblings, listening to her nurse's fairy tales. Above all, she loves the chilling story of Frost, the blue-eyed winter demon who appears in the frigid night to claim unwary souls. Wise Russians fear him, her nurse says, and honor the spirits of house and yard and forest that protect their homes from evil. After Vasilisa's mother dies, her father goes to Moscow and brings home a new wife. Fiercely devout, city-bred, Vasilisa's new stepmother forbids her family from honoring the household spirits. The family acquiesces, but Vasilisa is frightened, sensing that more hinges upon their rituals than anyone knows. And indeed, crops begin to fail, evil creatures of the forest creep nearer, and misfortune stalks the village. All the while, Vasilisa's stepmother grows ever harsher in her determination to groom her rebellious stepdaughter for either marriage or confinement in a convent. As danger circles, Vasilisa must defy even the people she loves and call on dangerous gifts she has long concealed. 
and this in order to protect her family from a threat that seems to have stepped from her nurse's most frightened tales. The Baron the Nightingale is a magical debut novel from a gifted and gorgeous voice. It spins an irresistible spell as it announces the arrival of a singular talent. So, although you listening to this will probably hear the cleaner version of it, it took me a few tries to get through that one. Um, That was a long little synopsis, but a long little one. But you've been a little burnt out from reading. Uh, yeah, I've been read a whole book like, and recorded himself speaking it the whole time. Although I am much better. Are <laughs> you? I am much better. It would have taken me several more tries if I had done that a few weeks ago. Oh, OK. All right. So. OK. Uh, listen, I know myself. Anyway. It does sound like very interesting. It's one of my absolute favorite books of all time. It's the first of a trilogy. Um, the second one is the girl in the tower. And then I think the third one is, uh, the day of the witch or something like that. I can't remember. The other two books are in the bedroom right now. Um, but either way, I messed that up. I'm sure, I'm sure the third book is, is something totally different. Um, but it is the whole series is, is absolutely incredible. I, for as long as I've known myself, as, as much as I have had consciousness and as much as I have had an ability to look into my own soul, okay, <laughs> I have always loved Russian folktales and Russian fairy tales and, and all those kinds of Russian things. Well, it's something that I think we don't know about enough in this country to begin with. And I think that's unfortunate mostly because for so much of at least the previous history that I know of of the U S and Russia is it's never been on good terms. So we, I think tend to shun a lot of Russian ideas and Russian like culture because we view it as tainted and right. bad because it's what we've been taught. So like, I don't even really know a lot about Russian folklore and Russian mythologies of like, even hearing ancient Russia sounds like weird. Yeah. It's, like I don't think about it. Cause it's to me, it's like, there's just no, there's nothing good there. That's what I've been taught is that it's just not worth exploring because well, that's yeah. Tensions have always been so bad between us and Russia. And that's again, kind of goes into what we were saying to begin with where, like it's pretty easy to just suddenly take one whole nation and vilify the whole every part of its being when i'm sure just as much as you've seen the bad there's so much good that russia has put out and it feels it feels like we we've just swept all that away to only highlight how problematic they are as right. as a whole which again isn't correct right i won't continue talking about it but I do want to say that so much of my interest ends right around the time. So much of my interest uh, on on Russian history pretty much ends on like when the the imperial imperialist Russia stopped. Right. That's right, right around the time where Lenin starts coming in and and, and uh, what the heck is. Uh, Communism starts being introduced into the country. 
And then that's kind of when my own personal interest in Russian anything kind of stops. I just just because anything about Russia slash the Soviet Union becomes all far, far too political after that point. Um, and nothing is artistic anymore, um, which is not completely true, but that's for another day. Um, yeah, next time we'll talk about communism. No. Well, uh, j- just a little hint as to what I'm talking about. When so- the Soviet Union took over, art was pretty much forced to be something. Oh, yeah. They forced art to go back to uh, to imperialist Russia, but because it felt so forced, it wasn't genuine. Right. So. Well, that's that's kind of what I mean. Is it, it does it doesn't mean anything because they were forcing something to happen that had already happened in the past, rather than growing and becoming new art. Right. Um, although there were composers and artists who who tried their best to 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 go th- slip through the cracks, but most of the times the government would hunt them down, kill their families, and threaten their lives. Um, yeah. But. Anyway, (laughs) anyway, um, the Baron and Nightingale is, I remember reading this and just, I could not stop, stop reading it. It was incredibly beautiful. Um, it's probably one of the strongest female characters in a book that I've ever read just because she just knows who she is and she won't let anybody tell her anything otherwise. Um, to the point where she will leave the people that she loves because she can't be, she can't be held down. Right. Um, so I think it's one of the the most powerful books that I've read in my past with books. Yeah. But, um, before we continue with the rest of the books that we've got here, uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break. Let's go. And we're big. And we're big. Let's talk about your next book. My next book is another book I read for school. For school. For school. This was college. College. So it was also a book I read during that uh, literature and culture class I talked about. But this is one of those books that I didn't expect I was going to like it based on like the cover and the name. And I absolutely loved it. Just seeing you holding it in your hand, I already know what book it is. And it is a book that I know you and I have talked about endlessly, although I have never read it. It is Purple Hibiscus by Chimananda Ngozi Adichie. I love that name. Her her name? Or the title? Yeah, no, her name. Yeah. Well, she's a, a Nigerian author yeah. who is amazing. I actually follow her on all social media, and she is fabulous. She does a lot of talking. She does a lot of talking as... A Nigerian woman feminist, which doesn't really happen a lot. I mean, it's a lot of African nations are very like anti-feminism, unfortunately. Mm. So she's one of the few very outspoken feminists from that region. Um, but I'll, I'll read you the synopsis and I apologize in advance. There is a lot of 
African Nigerian names that I don't know the proper pronunciations of, so I will do my best. Um, but I just don't want it to sound like I'm being like intentionally, right? You know, botching, botching of the name just because I'll read them as I can read them as as phonetically for my yeah. American English knowledge. Give it a go. In the city of Ungu, Nigeria, 15-year-old Kambili and her older brother Jaja lead a privileged life. Their papa is a wealthy, respected businessman. They live in a beautiful house, and they attend an exclusive missionary school. But as Kambili reveals her, her tender-hearted account, their home life is anything but harmonious. Her father, a fanatically religious man, has impossible expectations of his children and his wife. When Kambili's loving and outspoken auntie Ifioma persuades her brother that the children should visit her in Nzuka, Kambili and Jaja take their first trip away from home. Once they're in, and they're once inside their auntie Ifioma's flat, they discover a whole new world. When Kambili and Jaja return home, changed by their newfound freedom, tensions with the family escalates. And Kambili must find the strength to keep her loved ones together after her mother commits a desperate act. Mm. And I just found it to be very interesting as a non-Nigerian, <laughs> so obviously, but someone who doesn't really know fully about life in Nigeria. Right. And again, this book isn't indicative of everyone who lives in Nigeria, but the way it's portrayed is it, even though it's a different culture and a different like situational upbringing it's very relatable right it's a, it's a very strong coming of age story Kambili, you mentioned your the main character of that uh the bear and the nightingale being a strong woman she is strong in a different way instead of being like i like nobody's gonna tell me nothing i can't do she's like learning to find her own power during the book right and i know i've talked about it but the way it's written is so well themed for the stages of this growth that this character has. Cause in the very beginning of the story, the, the style of writing is very like to the point, very limiting, very like stunted because that's where the character is at. And the second she gets into this new town and starts to explore herself and finding new ways to feel free after being really restricted by her overbearing father's, rules and what they can do can and can't do and the abuse that she gets from her father when she leaves that when she goes away and she she experiences this actual freedom the style of writing turns into this like love of life beautiful like over de detailing everything that's going on because it's so much more wonderful it feels like very much like to go back to Wizard of Oz, going from the black and white into color. It's just right. very, like, very obvious that she's feeling the freedom and she's feeling alive and she's feeling for the first time like she can see the beauty in the world. Right. And it's just so well written. This is one of the two books that actually I remember I I read this whole book. And this is a thick book. I read yeah. this in one night. Wow. I read this book in one night because it was one of those books that... I just found it to be really interesting as a slice of life for a different culture. And it's so well written. I mean, Chimamanda, her, uh, her writing style is so just so unnecessarily to the point where I appreciate that as a reader, 
I've tried to read books sometimes where the author goes into so much detail of all of the like the things, the visualizations of things that I get bored. Yeah. And because it's at least for this, the style of where it needs to be at each part of the book, she does a good job of like understanding why it needs to be so stunted and then why in later it needs to be so vibrant. Right. And it's just a very good book. And I keep telling you, you should read it. You haven't read it. I know there's a lot of books I need to read, but it's very good. Yeah. And I, again, recommend you go read it, get a, a, a vibe for another nation's culture. And it's also just very compelling. I mean, the, there's a lot of stuff going on and it's it's not it's not a, a, a gentle book by any means so right don't expect that it's going to be all happy because it's mostly not right but again it's it's very interesting and it feels very relatable for even someone in our nation to, to comprehend so it's not like you're going to feel like you're can't relate to the material because you're not from that culture right so yeah yeah um, the next book that I have, um, it's a book that my aunt Trisha had bought me when I was a, a, a much younger person. Um, and it was a book that kind of really, truly impacted me as somebody um, who loves culture. And this was really one of those those gates into into that kind of life that I live now. The physical book that I have in front of me is the um, the UK adult edition. Um, and I say that specifically because it hints to a very specific cover that as a child gave me nightmares. Um, it is a very, very creepy cover. Um, but the UK title is the Northern lights, but we all know it and love it as the golden compass, mm. um, from his dark materials, the, his dark materials trilogy, um, that is, that was a movie with Nicole Kidman, um, and is now an HBO series still. Either it's done or it's whatever. But anyway, um, I just I don't want to really talk too much about this. It just it's just a book that um, really impacted me. Um, and this is a synopsis again on the back of the UK adult cover. Twelve-year-old Lyra Balakwa lives unparented and half wild among the scholars of Jordan College. One day, her uncle, Lord Asriel, an experimental theologian and explorer, arrives with terrifying news from the north, impelled at first by her own curiosity, but soon pursued by appalling dangers. Lyra is drawn into a savage struggle among the armored bears and witch clans of the Arctic, where a scientific research station is carrying out experiments too horrible to be spoken about. In order to survive at all, she must leave her childhood behind and venture where no one has gone before beyond the Northern Lights. Hmm. Um, yeah. And this book certainly gave me nightmares on multiple levels. But 
it was definitely one that had a huge impact because it was given to me at such a young age. Because it was so difficult to read at such a young age, it really had an impact on on me as somebody who aspires to learn more and to be as knowledgeable as I can about things and and so on. So I don't have really much more to say about it other than that. I do know that Julia Lepetit from Drawfee is one of her favorite books. It's it's an incredible book. And I have gone back to read it. I went back and read it when the American version came out as the Golden Compass. And I think my mom bought me the entire series. Um, there was a, at the point that I was acquainted with it, it had become a whole trilogy that was. Right. Um, I think that the second book is The Subtle Knife. And the third book is something I can't. Again, the third book I can't. It's the third book that I can't remember. It's not the third book. Um, book syndrome. Anyway, sorry, sorry to the authors who. Sorry to this man. Sorry to the authors who I have botched the name of the third book in their trilogies, but um, that's all I had to say about that book. Well, that was quick. It's yeah. Quick and snappy. I'll try to be quick and snappy with my last book of my youth if i can call it that to to highlight and uh this is one of my favorite authors and it's certainly not a book for everyone so i will (laughs) preface it now by saying i will say you should go read it but i will understand if you don't like it um but it is snuff by chuck polanik who People probably don't know him as the author of this book. They more know him from his most famous book, Fight Club. Fight Club. So he is an author who is not afraid to be wild. That I know. I mean, he one the reason why I love him as an author is he does not hold back at all. His writing style is always very graphic to the point of disgusting sometimes. And I appreciate that. Because it's it's like it feels like it should be gross out style of writing, like where it just get like it's unintentionally like the worst, most disgusting thing ever. Right. But because you assume that authors are going to be more clever about the way that they go about writing some of this stuff, and he doesn't, he just says it's straightforward, makes it so much more compelling to me. Right. I will read the description of this book, and again. You will see why it's either going to be a book you love or a book you will never want to go near at all. In the crowded green room of a porn movie production, hundreds of men mill around in their boxers waiting for their turn with the legendary Cassie Wright, an aging adult film star. Cassie intends to cap her career by breath by breaking the world record for serial fornication by having sex with 600 men on camera, one of whom may want to kill her. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And it's so interesting because it's such a specific, like, one yeah. direction of a story yeah. that it's so weird. <laughs> like, this guy had to, like, had to like, explain to his literary agent that he wants to write a book about a, a snuff film. Right. And it's like, the way it's written, too, they don't highlight every single person, but they highlight the three of the actors, if you can call it that, and the director of the shoot so and the way that they 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 label each chapter is the point of view of the person so the the three characters are mr 
six hundred, who's the last person in the film to have sex with this woman. Mr. 72, who's like a young, like he's he's like a nobody, very scrawny little young guy who's just trying to he has his own motives for being there. Mr. 137, who is a a actual television actor who got caught up in a scandal and is trying to like revamp his image by being a part of this porn film. And then the director's name, whose name is Sheila, who's basically running the whole production and is in charge of getting everybody like together for the shoot and is the one that that calls in the men to come in for their right. their time to shine, so to speak. And it's just the way it switches perspective is very interesting. You get a lot of background between each of these main characters. And you don't really get to know much about the actual Cassie Wright at all. And she's really the only one besides Sheila that actually gets a name, a mm. full name, let alone a name. Right. And it's very compelling. There's a lot of weird twists that happen throughout the book. It's very unusual from just like a every standpoint. It's like it, it it's. It's just so well written too, and this is a this is another book that I read in one night when I read it the first time because I just had to figure out what happened next. It was like it just was so compelling. There was so much that kept happening that you wanted to learn more about. The main characters were all interesting in their own way, and it's just one of those books that that it's going to keep making you like confused and weirded out in a way that's good. Right. That makes you kind of be like, what? Huh? Huh? Yeah. So again, it's not going to be a book for everyone, but even the way he writes uh, that Chuck Palnick writes, he's so blunt sometimes that he's also very funny. Like he's a very <laughs> humorous author while also being a very compelling and thought provoking and it's just it, it's so it's so so much in my vein of things that I like to to like read because it's just so weird. Yeah. And there's something about how how much porn actually is in the book that makes it sort of like, you know, again, whether you like it or not, it's just I'm not the biggest like sexual person on the planet. But the fact that it was so graphic, I was like, oh, ooh, this is intense. Like, it was just very, I guess because I felt like I was reading something, I was a little scandalized. Yeah. Like, ooh, this is dirty. Yeah. Ooh. So, again, it's not a book for everyone, but if you are someone who doesn't mind graphic material, his graphic material. His graphic material. <laughs> I would I would definitely recommend that book because it was very compelling and very interesting. And I didn't give any of it away, but there's a lot of interesting stuff that happens, like just from good story writing point of view. Yeah. Speaking of his dark materials and his dark point of view or whatever, um, I did materials. his graphic materials. Um, I did f remember the names of the 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 trilogy because after the golden compass is the ember spyglass and then the third book is the subtle knife so going back so to, there so i got it i remembered i remembered it 
Um, I still don't remember the third book of the Baron the Nightingale, but um, that brings me to my final book that I have uh, independently, uh, which I am <laughs> kind of realizing that the the all the books that I brought talk about young women who grow up to be strong people and well, most also, of them are orphaned. Well, they're also all like <laughs> fantasy books. They're all fantasy books. Um, I was diverse. I gave you young adult action sci-fi. I gave you culture and 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 different nations. Well, the third stories well, and porn. Yeah. You gave fantasy fantasy. I gave fantasy. <laughs> which is most of the books that I read. Um, but um, the book that I will talk about and after this one um, is different. Well, it's our joint. It's our, it's our joint, joint book. Um, but the book that I am referencing is Shadow and Bone. I love that show. It's so good. Um, this is by far number one. Number one. That's just why I saved it for last. It is number one. I literally own every possible creatureverse book including the journal that you can write in um he, based also, he even has a map of the i even have the universe. map i haven't gotten to a frame for it yet but i have a map um i have all i have the the collector's edition of both Shadow and Bone and the uh, Six of Crows. You're welcome for the first one. And thank you. <laughs> Which then goes into your welcome for the book you're going to talk about, your current read. Um, and then I own the two supplemental books, the Thorn, um, the Thorns one. I can't remember the full title. Um, and the uh, the Lives of the Saints. Yeah. Oh, The Language of Thorns. That's the book's title, The Language of Thorns. But anyway, we're here to talk about Shadow and Bone. So let me give you uh, a reading of the synopsis on the back. Orphaned and expendable, Alina Starkov is a soldier who knows she may not survive her first trek across the Shadow Fold. A swarth of unnatural darkness crawling with monsters. But when her regiment is attacked, Alina unleashes dormant magic not even she knew she possessed. Now Alina will enter a lavish world of royalty and intrigue as she trains with Grisha, her country's magical military elite, and falls under the spell of the notorious leader, the Darkling. He believes Alina can summon a force capable of destroying the Shadowfold and reuniting the war-ravaged country, but only if she can master her untamed gift. As the threat to the kingdom mounts and Alina unlocks the secrets of her past, she will make a dangerous discovery that could threaten all she loves and the very future of a nation. So, yes, I think the biggest thing about this that I love the most is, as I said before, the universe. I'm, I'm a sucker. The Grishaverse. Yes, the Grishaverse. I... So there, there are th three major things that make me love, love this book particularly. One, I love the world building and I love that the, I love the magical system in this, that 
it's not really supposed to be magic. Magic is something even beyond the understanding of Grisha. It's just a manipulation of natural things. Uh, Grisha is somebody who can can bend, like <laughs> who can bend, like the shadows and and light and fire, water, air, and just like natural elements. And um, magic in this universe is something that is like taboo. Like if you can do magic, like if you can conjure something out of nothing, that's what magic in this universe is. I know what else you like about this book. I also love magic deer, magic, magic deer. deer, magic deer, magic deer. <laughs> I'm a huge sucker for some reason. I don't know why I'm so obsessed. Magic deer with 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 deer i don't know i Magic love deer i think i love um one thing i love is the the natural look of antlers i love the way the antlers look and anytime that i see something like even just a silhouette of like a deer head and antlers i just that's i just love it um and the third thing i love about this is the television series that was made out of it. Yeah, it's very good. It was incredible. And I think one of the things that I love about that show is specifically the score to the... Mm. I think that the the score of that literally, literally made, literally? The, literally made the show. Like, I don't think it would have been a, as good of a Netflix series if it didn't have the music that it had. Yeah. I mean, some of the choices of the character. Yeah. Or I, I don't like the, I don't best, like the, yeah, but I understand for a first season of a show needing to do. Well, one thing I to start out with, right. The one thing I loved about the Netflix series is that they combined both shadow and bone and the six of crows book, which are two separate series within that universe. Yeah. Um, and because they really wanted to try and and broaden yeah, they the, to the world of a, of a joint series. Right. But um, just because we're we're getting so close to the end of our episode here, I kind of want to move on to a book that the both of us truly, truly enjoyed I reading. I showed it to you. But you showed to me, um, which... I will let you read the synopsis. There you go. Well, should we say what the book is called first? It's Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer. Which, for those who may have heard the name, yes, it is a movie. And it's nothing like the book. <laughs> I will say that. Right. It's not it's not exactly one to one for Which if I mean if you're specifically listening to, to my half of the books this this is a book that I brought to the the to the episode that I knew that we could talk about together, but it is far from anything that I have already talked about. It it's is probably more close to things that you've talked about. It's definitely not a fantasy. No. Um, so I'll read the uh, synopsis. Area X has been cut off from the rest of the world for decades. Nature has reclaimed the last vestiges of human civilization. The first expedition returned with reports of a pristine, identic landscape. 
The second expedition ended in mass suicide. The third in a hail of gunfire as its members turned on one another. The members of the 11th expedition returned as shadows of their former selves and within weeks all died, had died of cancer. In Annihilation, the first volume of Jeff Vandermeer's Southern Reach trilogy, we joined the 12th expedition. The group is made up of four women, an anthropologist, a surveyor, a psychologist, the de facto leader, and our narrator, a biologist. Their mission is to map the terrain, record all their observations of their surroundings and of one another, and above all, avoid being contaminated by Area X itself. They arrive expecting the unexpected and Area X delivers, but it's the surprises that came across the border with them and the secrets the expedition members are keeping from one another that change everything. Yeah. yeah. This is a book, by the way. That's a book I read in one night. I did, too. And this is a book, too, that I bought for the first time because of the cover. I For the original, I think they've done a reprint of, this, of the, the book as, at this point, and I think they've changed the cover. But the original cover, I just found it to be so interesting just because it's got, like, it's weird the way they break up the title of the book. Yeah, the word annihilation is broken up into four lines. Yeah. And it's the the graphic illustrations is very interesting to me. Very, like, very graphic design. Right. Very, like, harsh colored lines that are filled in with solid block of color. Like, it's it drew my attention as an artist right away. And it's one of those books that the reason it's so interesting is because of how it doesn't explain anything. Yeah. It it literally will hint at ev- it will hint at everything and answer absolutely nothing. Because and it does it for a reason that if you think if you're hearing this thinking that sounds like a bad idea for a book, it's written more so like a journal from the point of view of the narrator right. who is the biologist of the expedition. So she's writing this as if she doesn't know what's going on because she can't comprehend what's going on. Yeah. So it adds to this, like, there's there's the confusion and the curiosity is there because the main character feels that as you feel that. Right. Which is so well done. Right. And you only get one perspective of the whole right. thing that's going on. And it's really, it's truly a thrilling book. And it's creepy. It's ominous. It's like you have this over beer bearing I like feeling the whole time you read of it, like you know something bad is gonna happen, but you don't know what because there's no way to know what's going to happen. Right. And if you're somebody who has not seen the film, do not watch the film until you've read the book. And that's only because the book is so much better than the film. Oh, f- and by the, far. The film is not bad. It's just taken the the unknowingness of the book and visualized it in a way that's not as fulfilling for those who have read the book. Because I think the book, the, the movie actually has like a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. So it's not like it wasn't well received. It's just compared to what the book gives away, which is nothing, the movie gives away a lot. And it's also... Right. And it's not it's, it's easy to know why that it, it went the way it did, because you can't do a movie in the, the vein that the book does it. You can't have a one perspective movie. It doesn't work. No, You'll always see other people's perspectives in some form, even if it's only a little bit. So when you add the visual aspect to the, this group of women and I love that, I love it's a group of women on this expedition just because it's changes up the typical like dynamic of, of a group of group of 
scientists doing their job. And so when you see it in the movie, a lot of the the un, unknown of what the other characters are thinking are kind of taken away. Like part of the the intrigue of the book with the character dynamics between the group of women is not like the main character doesn't is so paranoid herself from the very beginning that she doesn't know what's going in the minds of everyone else around her and is constantly like on high alert. Right. Which is kind of where this this air of paranoia is always ever present throughout the entire book and why it's so ominous feeling. And and then when you do have these like big scenes of like, holy shit, this is like next level, like like basically like what feels like on par of like Lovecraftian horror style, like world ending feeling kind of things. It's always in the sign of like, there's just no way to comprehend what I'm seeing and I don't trust myself now. Right. And that's, that's an interesting vibe that the book does well is like the main character starts to question herself because of stuff that happens in the book that happens to her happens around her that it's just, it's a very interesting character study. Right. Um, before we finish off this episode, I figured that the both of us could um, just. What are we reading now? Yeah, I thought I thought we we won't go too much into it because obviously oh, we don't these have enough to we talk. don't have enough to talk about. So we'll just um, we'll just tell everybody what we're currently reading and give the synopsis, and um, one day in the future we can kind of maybe do a part two. Do a part two. Um, I'll start. I'm currently reading a darker shade of magic by V.E. Schwab. Um, first off, I can already tell this is probably going to be another one of my absolute favorite book series, but um, uh, Welcome to Grey London, Dirty and Boring, Without Any Magic, with One Mad King, George III. And then there is Red London, where life and magic are revered, and White London, a city slowly being drained through magical war down to its very bones. And once upon a time, there was Black London, but no one speaks of that now. Officially, Kel is the Red Traveler, one of the last magicians who can travel between the worlds, acting as an ambassador and messenger between the Londons in service of the, the Marsh Empire. Unofficially, he is a smuggler, which is a dangerous hobby for him to have, as proved when Cal stumbles into a setup with a forbidden token from Black London. Fleeing into Grey London, Cal runs afoul of Delilah Bard, a purse with lofty aspirations, who first robs him, then saves him from a dangerous enemy, and then forces Cal to spirit her into another world for a proper adventure. But perilous magic is afoot, and treachery lurks at every turn to save all the worlds they'll first need to stay alive. Yeah, I've read that stuff just a couple times when you've showed it to me, and I definitely found it to be intriguing. Mm -hmm. And I love the cover, too. Yeah. Anyway, what are you reading? My book is one that many people know the universe. You're welcome. Thank you for the book. You bitch. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, but it's something that I, I have been interested in when I saw it. And 
for those who are familiar with the beloved children's television show, which sounds reductive to be labeled as a children's television show, but Avatar The Last Airbender, I'm reading The Rise of Kiyoshi, which is, for those who know the show, is the avatar of the universe before... uh, Aang. No. Before... Avatar Roku, who was the avatar before A. Oh, uh, okay. So Avatar Kyoshi is two avatar, but they talk about Kyoshi a lot in Avatar: The Last Airbender. Gotcha. She was one of like the big ones who did a lot with her time as the avatar. For those who don't know about this universe, uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender was a children's television show that aired on Nickelodeon in the two thousands, and it centers around this world that is dominated by four nations surrounded by four elements that where inside this universe there are benders who are born with the ability to bend those specific elements so there's fire earth uh air and water and the avatar is a is a someone who is born every generation as the someone who can bend all four elements and also is able to commune and and be the bridge to the spirit world which is also another aspect of this universe that there's like a whole world of just spirits and and it plays off of a lot of japanese uh styled mythology without being actually directly japanese like in nature but it's very much on par with with a lot of asian mythologies kind of bundled and made into its own mythology of sorts Um, But I will read the synopsis. Justice begins with one woman. After nine years of desperate searching for the next avatar, the discovery of a young, charming avatar, Yun, has brought stability to the Four Nations. That is, until Earth Kingdom-born Kiyoshi, Yun's unassuming friend and servant, demonstrates remarkable bending during a mission to the South Pole. With the identity of the true avatar at stake and the growing unrest among her allies turning, turning into violence, Kiyoshi is forced to flee the Avatar Mansion with her fiery friend Rangi, taking a little more than the metal war fans and headdresses her parents left behind. It isn't easy finding Avatar training on the run, but Kiyoshi and Rangi find unlikely supporters in the Daofei, ragtag criminals and outlaws living in the shadows of the Earth Kingdom. Torn between following the traditional path of an Avatar and seeking vengeance for those she has lost, Kiyoshi struggles to accept her newfound power as she trains in secret. But while Kiyoshi, Rangi, and her Daofei friends face off against brutal underworld rivals, those who seek to control the Avatar draw her draw ever closer to her, leaving trails of the dead in their wake. The story behind the long-living Avatar and the history of the beloved world, the rise of Kiyoshi maps Kiyoshi's journey from a girl of humble origins to the merciless pursuer of justice still feared and admired centuries after becoming the Avatar. Yeah. Which is very interesting because... Each of the, uh, the Avatar series, there have been two television series at this point. Even in Legend of Korra, which takes place after Aang, who's the main character of Avatar Last Airbender's time as being the Avatar, they still talk about Kiyoshi. Like, she was so prolific as her time in this universe that I was excited to see them write a, her story because there's so much that you could figure out about her. And it's so interesting to see. Yeah. Even in the beginning of this book, her being so 
passive and she's like weak and she's like doesn't know what she, like she's not she doesn't even she isn't even the avatar in her universe when she's a child there's someone else they chose they chose someone else for because they just happened to hit some of the 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 beats they have like a bunch of things they can identify the avatar as without them having to necessarily prove it through their ability to bend all four elements so she's not even considered in line to be the avatar because they think they've already found them only for her to like become who she is through this like back, right. back backwards way of, of the way it should be going and it's just it's definitely a very interesting approach to this story and it's also still for like a series that has kind of transcended its origins as a children's tv show it's very it's very well written and it's very it's still kind of graphic like it's i haven't read a whole lot but they're not afraid to be intense and even though it's a story that started out on nickelodeon right and even that show wasn't very afraid to be right intense which is why i think so many people fell in love with it right but um so that's gonna do it for today uh it was a it was a bit of a long one today but we, well, we're trying to make up for the fact we haven't had an yeah. episode in a while. <laughs> um, but um, we'd like to thank everybody for, for listening. And thank you for sticking with us, even though we've been gone for a few weeks. Yeah, things quieted down a bit. So hopefully we'll back, be back on a regular schedule. Right. Um, thank you to Daryl Banner for the use of our theme Thanks, music. Daryl Banner. Thank you for writing that. Song. It's yeah. so wonderful. Yes. Can I say thank you to our... Patreon supporters. Yeah, do it. Thank you, Patreon supporters. Thank you. You too can become a Patreon member if you want to help support the show. We don't really have a whole lot quite yet. We have a lot of things on the horizon that we're planning on doing once we have more time to, to get it all done. But we do have a couple tiers on on our Patreon. Nothing crazy. We're not asking for a lot. We're just asking for a little. Yeah. And you can do that by going to patreon.com slash culture. If you want to sign up or read more about what to expect, we're going to put up there in the future. Right. Um, we have a $1 general support tier and we have a $5 tier with with bonus content. So if you want to come in and join us, feel free to join. And, and if you feel like that uh, Patreon is not something you can do to support, there are other ways you can do that. Tell them about it, Brian. Well, it helps if you would uh, like our posts, share everything on social media with your friends and think of who might be interested in our show. If you rate and review us on on Apple, it helps us get out in the algorithms. Algorithms. And just, again, just general sharing and supporting our show by telling people about it is pretty much the, the best way to get us out there. Because what do they say about the best way to, to do marketing? Is the word of mouth. Word of mouth. So just any any way you can get us out there to friends and family is helpful. And um, and if you like half of the people that are on this show. <laughs> another podcast and it's kind of taking a break. <laughs> that's kind of taking a break, but is also for the same reasons, but has a much bigger back catalog than our show. You can go well, listen to the Composer Chronicles. Yeah. You can Steven's other show. My other show um, upcoming, I have some episodes um, about the little shop of horrors that I did with um, even the score podcast. Um, 
I have an episode that I'm going to be recording soon on the music of Ori and the Blind Forest. Um, and I'm very excited to be releasing an episode in about a week or so uh, where I interviewed 10 of the 12 members of the uh, Iceberg Music Collective. It's a collective of 12 composers um, who all started off in New York. Uh, they're all friends and they just decided to one day to become a collective of composers who who put who write music put on concerts and they even have some incredible projects coming up so you can listen to that episode and learn more about them but uh that is it for today's episode i'm your host steven trigar and i'm your other still sorry host brian edwards <laughs> and we'd like to ask you listener are you feeling really cultured today i guess so bye Alexandrian Media, Art and Culture for the Modern Era.